If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Henry VIII's reign was one of pure drama, and not just in terms of his six marriages. His lofty ambitions and turbulent emotions made him an upstart at a time when other European kingdoms were consolidating huge amounts of power. Henry needed to assert himself, and that's where the warship, the Mary Rose, comes into this story. I'm Emily Briffitt, and in this new History Extra podcast series, we're marking the 40th anniversary of the raising of the Mary Rose by delving back into its fascinating history and uncovering the secrets this Tudor shipwreck has hidden out of reach for more than four centuries. We'll reveal why the discovery of the Mary Rose has been so influential in shaping and challenging our understanding of the Tudor era. From the heat of naval battle and manoeuvres of royal politicking, and explore what we can learn from the treasures found in the murky depths. You may have heard the rumour that the Mary Rose sank on its maiden voyage. Well, that's not quite true. This warship actually had a long life before its fighting days were brought to an abrupt end as it sank to the bottom of the Solent. And that's exactly what we're going to be discussing in this episode. We're going to rewind almost 500 years to take a look at the Mary Rose in its heyday, from the first shots fired through the political crises of the early 16th century, right up to its downfall. Well, almost. 
to situate us in this dramatic tale of coastal skirmishes, international politicking and royal rivalry, I spoke to historian Dr Tracy Borman, a Tudor specialist, and Dr Dominic Fontana, originally a photographer on the Mary Rose Project and now an expert on the Battle of the Solents. Okay, so let's start with the warmongering man at the centre of all of this, Henry VIII. Over to Tracy. Henry VIII was like a thunderbolt when he came to the throne. He succeeded his very cautious, dour, serious-minded father, Henry VII. And he was only 17 when he became king. It's easy to forget that. And he was incredibly athletic. He was described as an Adonis by one visitor to his court. Very stridently confident, at least in public. And he was determined to make his mark from the very beginning. And the way he chose to do that was to make war against all of the advice of his father's counsellors and everybody else he was surrounded with and against the advice of the treasury, which you know, could have done with uh, being left alone for a while. Henry decided this was it. This was his chance to make his mark as king. So he was going to go to war pretty much immediately. So Henry VIII comes to the throne, this sort of strapping 17-year-old full of warlike intentions. And part of those intentions really lay in Henry's character. But to be fair to Henry, this wasn't just all in his character, because there was a long-standing tradition of rivalry between England and continental Europe, and France in particular. So Henry wanted to sort of reignite the glory days of England, where kings such as Edward III and Henry V had won these great victories in France, and crucially, had won huge swathes of territory across the Channel. And that territory had been gradually eroded over the centuries, so there was really hardly any of it left. And Henry saw it as his job to set that to rights. But the wars that Henry had dreamt of were no longer the norm. The relationship between European powers had shifted. When Henry came to the throne... There had been years of peace between England and Europe. Thanks to his father, he was much more cautious than his sort of headstrong son, uh, Henry VIII. And he'd negotiated various diplomatic alliances, of course, a very prestigious alliance with Spain when he married uh, his eldest son, Prince Arthur, to Catherine of Aragon, daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain. And Henry VII had been all about the diplomacy. So England actually had enjoyed greater peace and stability than it had for a very long time. But meanwhile, of course, there were rivalries, there were wars within continental Europe itself, and particularly between the two, I think we'd call them superpowers today. So France and Spain, with the Holy Roman Empire kind of attached on to Spain for most of that time. And those two great powers were forever tussling for supremacy. And by comparison, England was just a fairly small, dare I say it, insignificant kingdom. But Henry VIII wanted to change all of that. And something that was going to play a very important part in Henry's military ambitions was his navy. Henry sends out a very clear message from the very beginning of his reign by commissioning two huge new ships. If an English king had wanted to to go to war overseas, they would just requisition merchant vessels or, or those of their subjects. 
But it was really Henry who started the concept of a Royal Navy. And the two ships that he had built would prove very, very significant, or at least one of them would. They were the Mary Rose and its sister ship, the wonderfully named Peter Pomegranate. Now, the rose was the Tudor symbol and the pomegranate was Henry's wife's symbol. She was Catherine of Aragon, his late brother's widow, and that was her emblem. Now, the pomegranate was quite a lot smaller than the Mary Rose, but they were both fairly colossal vessels. And it was sort of like building up a cache of nuclear arms today. It did send out a very clear, strident message to Henry's continental rivals that, right, he's king now and he has warlike intentions. And if the message wasn't clear enough already, Henry was about to make his ambitions all the more obvious. Really, uh, we're talking about the very first years of Henry's reign that he declares his intention and actually declares war on France. So he starts with France, which, you know, makes sense because Henry is married to a Spanish princess. So he has to tread rather carefully there. But also there is this long standing tradition. It's called the Old Alliance between France and Scotland. Well, of course, England and Scotland are rivals. They border each other. And there's this long tradition of France supporting Scotland against England. So France is the natural enemy number one for Henry. And he declares war really within a couple of years of becoming king. And there are, you know, some skirmishes and there's a bit of action on both sides fairly, you know, in Henry's favour. But really, he does literally come out all guns blazing, having been crowned. So one of the first major encounters between England and France was the Battle of saint Mathieu, and I'm probably slaughtering the French there. And that's when the Mary Rose first saw action. It was commanded by Edward Howard, who was high in Henry's favour. And he led a series of successful raids along the coast of Brittany in the lead up to this battle. Really, it, it, it was a very aggressive start for Henry and his reign. And what you find is that, like Edward Howard, any sort of warlike men at court would immediately win favour. So Henry's kind of being egged on by all of these sort of very young, kind of warlike men, and he's not listening to his more aged advisers. But the, the battle was really, I think we can most kindly say, inconclusive. It was followed up by Moore, and, and Henry certainly didn't give up. But you know, I think perhaps he should have learned his lesson from that initial encounter, because war tended to be both credibly expensive, but also pretty uncertain in terms of the outcome. And even a victory could be very short-lived. But Henry, of course, didn't learn from that. He just wanted to play the great warrior king and pretend he was Henry V. Uh, And so nothing was going to stop him. The recently appointed admiral of Henry's newly enlarged fleet, Sir Edward Howard, selected the Mary Rose as his flagship. Interestingly, he favoured it over the Regent, the largest ship available at the time. From this commanding role, it's said that the Mary Rose fired the battle's first shot, taking out the main mast of the French flagship, Grand Louise, killing 300 men and blasting the French ship out of commission. But this is where we come up against a frustrating brick wall in the historical record. After it dealt such a killer blow to the French flagship, 
We can't say what happened to the Mary Rose, because we just don't have any more sources about its role in the rest of the battle. After its brief stint as a warship, the Mary Rose's time skirmishing with the French was put on pause, leaving her available for more leisurely pursuits. And in March 1513, the ship took on an unlikely role as Admiral Howard's racing yacht. Taking a break from waging war, he issued a challenge to his fleet to race around the coast of Kent. And despite being almost four miles behind some of the lead vessels at the start, the Mary Rose won. In a subsequent letter to his king, Howard praised his speedy flagship, calling her not just the noblest ship of sail, but the flower of all ships that ever sailed. Of course, this may have been partly due to Henry's role in the building of the ship, but either way, the Mary Rose seems to have left quite the impression on the Admiral. This brief respite for the crew of the Mary Rose didn't last long, however, as by April 1513, the English fleet had once again returned to harass the French at Brest, and this antagonism was an ongoing theme that lasted throughout Henry's reign. What you find in the course of Henry's reign is that he and France go from being the most bitter enemies to suddenly being friends again. And they do so in very extravagant style. When they make an alliance, they really celebrate it. And I think we'd probably call them frenemies today. But what really had an impact on this relationship and made it even more intense was the accession in 1515 of Henry's greatest rival. So Francis I, he was so similar to Henry. He was this very good-looking, young, charismatic, and very warlike young king. And he was Henry's greatest competitor from the beginning. So only three years separated them. Francis was the archetypal Renaissance prince with the likes of Leonardo da Vinci frequenting his court. It was said that he had the Mona Lisa in his bathroom. And Henry was just driven insane by this. He couldn't bear it. All these reports he kept hearing about how fabulous the new King of France was. There's this wonderful insight into the intensity and and the personal nature of their rivalry by a Venetian ambassador who had an audience with Henry VIII. and, And the subject of the conversation turned, of course, to the new King of France. And Henry wanted to know not so much about the you know the the diplomatic or the the kind of military situation in France, but he wanted to know about Francis the First's physical attributes. So, is he as tall as I am? He wanted to know. Is he as stout? What sort of legs has he got? And then Henry immediately drew attention to his own very fine calves, as if to prove that his you know were far superior. So, from the very beginning, it was a deeply personal rivalry, and it remained so. But of course, because they were so similar. When they were getting on, they were getting on spectacularly well, but it only ever seemed to be quite temporary. And when it came to 16th century alliances, appearance was everything. One of the greatest examples of Henry and Francis actually declaring they were friends now came in the summer of 1520 with a spectacular two-week meeting between these two kings known as the Field of Cloth of Gold. Well, it was held on neutral territory between English-held Calais and French lands, and it was a showpiece the like of which had never been seen before. So Henry went with his queen, Catherine of Aragon, and a huge entourage that included 3,000 soldiers 
and 500 horsemen and hundreds of ships. And it was like an invasion, but a a peaceful invasion. And everything was so carefully stage managed by Henry's chief advisor, Cardinal Wolsey, to make sure that the kings were strictly on an equal footing, even down to, would you believe, remodelling the two hillsides from which each king rode down to meet the other. So they had to be of the same height, otherwise one of the kings would have the advantage. When the two kings did finally meet, uh, the scene was described by Edward Hall, who was one of the best chroniclers of the age. And he said how they embraced with benign and courteous manner and sweet and goodly words of greeting. And they went off arm in arm. But this being Henry and Francis, it wasn't going to stay very friendly for long because it was clear that this so-called sort of meeting of peace was really just a cover for each king to get one over on the other. So they tried to outdo each other in the tournaments and the entertainments. Each king tried to be the most gallant with the ladies, as it was described. And it all really fell apart a bit when Henry VIII got a little bit too full of himself. And he also was a bit too full of wine. And he challenged Francis to a wrestling match. Well, this wasn't supposed to happen. It was just supposed to be their respective entourages who would fight each other. But Henry was sure of victory. He was a great sportsman. And he very quickly got thrown to the ground by Francis. And to say things turned sour after that would be an understatement. Basically, the meeting came to an end pretty soon after that. And Henry promptly went and made peace with Francis's greatest rival, Charles V, King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor. So really this incredible showpiece, this cripplingly expensive masquerade of friendship was soon shown to be the real sham that it actually was. Henry's supposed relationship with Francis was soon over the English king now had a new best friend. In 1522, Henry was definitely getting on with Charles V. So they'd become allies after the Field of Cloth of Gold. And Charles V actually visited Henry in England and very eager to impress his new best friend. Henry showed off his two favourite ships. One of them was the Henry Grasse Adieu, better known as the Great Harry. But the other was probably Henry's top favourite, and that was the Mary Rose. And I think Henry was making a point, yes, they are friends now, but he has a bit of power behind him if Charles chooses to fall out with him. Now, this all seems a bit confusing. One minute, Henry was friends with Francis, and the next minute he's allying up with Charles. So what was behind all of this back and forth? European relations at this time were so turbulent and there were so many different factors involved in the changing friendships and aggressions between England and continental Europe. Well, one of the most important factors was, of course, religion. And Henry had sparked this by separating England from the rest of Catholic Europe in order to have his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled in 1533, so that he could marry Anne Boleyn. And the reason for that was he wanted a son. Of course, he was obsessed with Anne, but he definitely needed a male heir. 
Now, we tend to forget that the Tudors were still quite a new and fairly fragile dynasty, and Henry really felt that. So it wasn't just vanity, his need for a male heir. He actually did genuinely, desperately need one. This triggered the break with Rome because the Pope wouldn't grant his permission to Henry for an annulment. And so Henry just bypassed him. He made a separate Church of England over which he was the supreme head. But all of this was tortuously difficult because the woman Henry was trying to get rid of, Catherine, happened to be the aunt of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. So it was all deeply incestuous and complicated things no end. And it did almost become a battle between the Catholic powers of Europe and reformist England. But it wasn't quite that straightforward because Henry VIII himself saw that, you know, Catholicism was still alive and well in his kingdom. And he himself felt that he was a true Catholic. He just wasn't a Roman Catholic anymore. But religion, I think, was probably the single most important factor in this complex power play within Europe at this time. During the years that followed the field of cloth of gold, what happened was that there was this constant shift of alliances really between England and France and Spain slash the Holy Roman Empire. So really between Henry, Francis and Charles V. It was said that England was like a bone being fought over by two dogs. But actually, it wasn't quite as passive as that, and certainly not in Henry's eyes. He was really at the centre of this complex picture of diplomacy and warfare. So it literally changed with the wind. You know, one minute he was friends with Francis. The next, he was friends with Charles. The worst case scenario for Henry was if Francis and Charles were friends without him, because that really was a very potent threat to Henry because his kingdom was eclipsed by those of France and Spain and the Holy Roman Empire. So if those superpowers got together and actually stopped fighting for once and allied against Henry, that really spelt danger. And precisely that happened in the late 1530s. And it was for this reason that Henry made probably his most disastrous marriage, certainly in his eyes, to Anne of Cleves, because he was desperate for allies. He was convinced that England was about to be invaded by this allied superpower. And so he made he made a treaty with, with Cleves, this German state. But that was a direct result of the diplomatic situation shifting yet again within Europe. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. So where exactly was the Mary Rose in all of this? Having been involved in some minor skirmishes throughout the early 1520s, the warship seems to have lain rather dormant from 1525 through to the mid-1530s, while this back and forth between superpowers raged on. That was until Catholic Europe was scandalised by Henry's new turn to Protestantism, and the sudden fracture saw him gain a raft of new enemies. With his neighbours now posing even more of a threat, Henry needed to re-evaluate his strategic position. He had to enhance his army by sea. Even his favoured Mary Rose underwent a refit, adding extra gun ports and strengthening its side so it could accommodate extra weights. However, these changes left the ship heavier, compromising the nifty sailing capabilities of her racing days under Admiral Howard. And in making the Mary Rose less manoeuvrable, had these updates also left her more vulnerable? Vice Admiral John Dudley seems to have thought so, branding Henry's new supercharged ships unweatherly. By 1539, Henry feared invasion from the Catholic powers of Europe, and by that summer, sure enough, the Mary Rose had been anchored off Deptford, ready to protect the River Thames. In this pattern of ever-shifting alliances, Henry eventually concluded a fairly firm treaty with Charles V in 1542, and they made a pact to go to war against France. Well, Henry was delighted about this. Uh, France was really always his main rival. And he immediately started amassing this huge invasion fleet, because it's not one of the most famous military events in English history. We tend to forget just how huge it really was. But he was going to set sail himself. This was Henry's last gasp attempt at military glory. By now, And by the standards of the age, he was an old man and he was certainly not a well man. He had these very painful ulcerated legs. He'd put on an enormous amount of weight. But this was his chance to recapture the glories of his youth as he saw them. And so he set sail for France and he and his army besieged the key town of Boulogne in northern France and actually succeeded in capturing the town. So that was seen as a major victory. This might seem like a joyous moment for Henry, a French town won in the name of England. However, not all was as it seems. As Henry's troops landed in Calais, Charles V had backed out of their agreement, leaving Henry and his men stranded. With no hope of hitting a major city like Paris, Henry's troops decided to target whichever town happened to fall within their reach. Boulogne. It seemed his alliance with Charles had failed, 
And on top of that, though the siege of Boulogne had been a victory for Henry, it wasn't a lasting one. Wars were cripplingly expensive and actually maintaining his hold on the town pretty much bankrupted his own kingdom, but he threw everything he had at it. It was only a matter of time, though, before France would recapture Boulogne and indeed before France would seek to avenge that defeat and actually take aggressive action against Henry. By the following year, 1545, Henry found himself in a tricky situation, to say the least. While his troops were across the Channel in Calais, or defending his newly captured territories, Francis had assembled a mass fleet ready to launch an attack on England. Henry was left with only a small militia and as many farmhands as he could muster. His nation had been left undefended. Dr Dominic Fontana explains what happened next. Francois has spent a lot of money and a lot of time bringing together his fleet at Le Havre. A number of the ships, probably about 25 or so, had travelled all the way from the Mediterranean. They'd started off in Venice and in Genoa, made their way through the Mediterranean, out via the Straits of Gibraltar. We know that they called in at Lisbon on their way up in Portugal, where they picked up a pilot who would deal with the navigation across the Bay of Biscay and up the north coast of France to join the rest of the French fleet. We know that they then came across with the rest of the French fleet from La Havre over to Portsmouth. They didn't really have a particularly good military plan. They had a lot of resources, but I think they were hoping that they would be able to land their army in Portsmouth at the deepwater quaysides of Portsmouth and further up the Solent and up Southampton Water at Southampton, where the big ships could come alongside, discharge their soldiers directly to shore and assemble the army. Let's pause for a moment here, with the French fleet lurking off the eastern end of the Isle of Wight, ready to launch a massive attack. Tracy has filled us in on some of the big geopolitical picture of the time, the fickle nature of alliances and the Tudor politicking that has led us up to this point. But now let's zoom right in to take a closer look at the scene of the conflict. Portsmouth was now directly in the line of fire. Any assault on England would require taking it first. You can only imagine the tension flooding through the city. One of the best sources we have that gives us a picture of what was going on at this time is an image from a series of five artworks known as the Cowdery Engraving. The Cowdery picture that's showing the sinking of the Mary Rose was originally an enormous wall painting at Cowdery Park at Midhurst in Sussex. And it was painted between 1545 and 1548. And it was painted for Sir Anthony Brown, who was master of Henry VIII's horse. He, he was a well-connected gentleman. Cowdray House, he'd recently inherited from his half-brother, and uh, I think he was really had an eye to redecorating and redisplaying his, his house his, as a, a, a place that he could meet up with, with his chums for banquets and tales of daring do. 
And so the dining parlour had this wall painting of the sinking of the Mary Rose and the defence of Portsmouth in July 1545. But Sir Anthony was obviously a man who liked really to have lots of information there. They are so full of detail. And it's something that makes me think that perhaps Sir Anthony was what perhaps today we might term a railway modeller. He was somebody who liked to recreate that detail and get that detail right. You know, so I've got a good deal of faith in the representations that he's shown in these pictures. Now, one of the really unfortunate things about the story of the Cowdray pictures is that all of the originals were destroyed by fire in 1793 when Cowdray House was largely burnt down. That was a tragedy, but very luckily... It's a tragedy that's been mitigated because the Society of Antiquaries had a series of watercolour paintings and then engravings made of those pictures. So we actually still have the engravings and some of the details of the watercolours of all five pictures. Really most important amongst those was the sinking of the Mary Rose and the battle at Portsmouth in 1545, it's just packed with detail and incident. It's as though somebody had gone along and taken a lot of press reportage photographs of various activities happening around the battlefield and had then assembled it together to produce an image that's a narrative, an image that can tell us the sequence of the events, can tell us something about the people involved. Before we dive into the detail Sir Anthony Brown included in his picture, let's take a moment to imagine what this scene actually looked like. Grab your magnifying glass and let's go, as Dominic tells us what the Cowdery picture shows us about Portsmouth's preparations for war. The Cowdery picture is a long panoramic picture with South Sea in the lower part of the image, the Solent and Spithead in the middle, and the north coast of the Isle of Wight at the top of it. Over at the left-hand side of the picture, we've got the French fleet, representing about 225 ships with about 30,000 soldiers. On the right-hand side, we have the English fleet with about 60 ships. And down on the South Sea uh, landmass, we have the English army, of about 12,000 in total. So the English were outnumbered by the attacking French. The Cowdray picture shows some of the English ships sailing out of Portsmouth Harbour to join the main fleet at Spithead. In the centre of the picture, we've got Southsea Castle, which was a very new castle just built by Henry VIII as part of his coastal fortifications. But the engraving doesn't just show us the build-up to a big naval battle. Just down in front of Southsea Castle is King Henry VIII himself, mounted on a very fine horse. Immediately behind him, we've got Sir Anthony Brown on a a very fine grey. Next to him, Charles Brandon, 1st Duke of Suffolk, who was the commander of the land forces at Portsmouth on that day, 
One of the little groups of people that I was always intrigued by was right down at the front in the middle of the picture where there's a, a group of three people. It's Sir William Paulet, who was governor of Portsmouth in 1545, with his wife, Elizabeth, and his youngest son, Giles. And there's a little retinue that is going with a very grand woman, who is almost certainly the Queen, Catherine Parr, making her way over to be introduced and to be met by uh, Sir William Paulet and his wife. Alongside the important figures there to show their faces, the picture also depicts those preparing for battle. If we look over to the left of Southsea Castle, there's a group of soldiers there who are very well equipped with pikes and arquebuses. That's uh, uh, an early type of musket. And they're being shown to a very important man by somebody else in the picture. And this, I'm sure, is to represent a story about one of Sir William Paulet's children, Chidiac Paulet, who brought a group of 200 fully equipped and armed, properly trained soldiers from Basingstoke down to Portsmouth. And he's showing them to a very grand man who is almost certainly Francois van der Delft, who was the ambassador from Charles V's imperial court. One of the details I find most interesting about the cowdry engraving is the inclusion of bread ovens and breweries. Now, you might be wondering, why am I highlighting bread and beer in the scene of a naval battle that could have seen the end of England as Henry knew it? Well, bread and beer are far more significant than you might expect. If you've got 12,000 soldiers, how do you feed them? Every single one of them will require at least half a loaf of bread per day. Now that means you've got to make 6,000 loaves of bread as an absolute minimum level of, of sustenance. Now that takes about three tonnes of flour to make. Now that is a lot of bread. When you've got no factories to produce this, you've only got the bakeries. And in, in Portsmouth, there were eight bread ovens. The other thing that's also shown in the Cowdray picture are the breweries, because that's your other problem. You've got to provide drink for your soldiers. And Portsmouth actually had four breweries that had been established for Henry VIII. And these were producing about 500 barrels of beer a day. With enough bread and beer to keep his men provisioned, Henry's forces may have been prepared logistically. But were they actually ready for battle? A French fleet was anchored only miles away, and this put Henry and the people of Portsmouth in serious danger. You go back through Henry's papers, all his letters, he was constantly writing through the court to all sorts of people and then to him, you know, planning out all these military manoeuvres right across the country. Fantastic detail in it. And when he starts stitching it all together and you see the, the difficulties that people are having in other parts of the country. I mean, Henry was expecting large numbers of reinforcement ships to come up from the West Country to Portsmouth. 
And there were letters written down to those in charge down in the West Country. And the letters coming back all say things like, well, we haven't got any spare sailors and we haven't quite finished the ships and we can't quite get enough fiddles on board and so on. So they simply weren't coming. And, you know, you can think about how how that would appear to the court here in Portsmouth actually at that time, thinking, oh my goodness, nobody's actually going to come and support us. We've got to make the most out of what we've got. Tune in next week when we'll be picking up the story of the Battle of the Solent once again, rejoining Henry and his forces as they stood on the brink of disaster, with a French fleet directly on their doorstep. Many thanks to my experts for today's episode, Dr Dominic Fontana and Dr Tracy Borman. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Daniel Adamson. Listener.